podcast. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. Thank you for tuning in. If you are watching here on YouTube, please click subscribe and the bell for continued notifications. If you are listening through a podcast platform like Spotify or iTunes, please do not hesitate to leave a review. Be honest about that review. Uh, let me know how I'm doing so that I know how to adjust, how to improve the channel, um, and so on. I wanted to talk a little bit uh, today. I'm recording on Monday the 3rd, before the 4th of July, and, and you're listening to this likely on Thursdays, just that you have an idea of when I'm recording this. Recording a little bit early on in the week because of the, because of the 4th of July holiday. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about Christian nationalism, dominion, post-millennial theonomy, and so on. I, I am convinced, and I think others are convinced as well, and concerned that something like postmillennial theonomy is a confusion of the covenant of works with the covenant of grace. And so what I would like to do is kind of relate some of the contemporary conversation about uh, Christian nationalism, uh, Christian politics in general, something like postmillennial theonomy and kind of the progress of, uh, of the dominion mandate amongst Christians as they engage the culture around them. I want to relate that discussion to uh, a, a deeply theological conviction uh, of the Reformed community since at least the 17th century, but I would say even obviously going on before that, uh, though it was most codified in the, in the Reformed confessions in the 17th century. Uh, and that is uh, the covenant theology uh, that you see represented in something like a covenant of works, versus a covenant of grace. And this is a this is essentially a distinction that everyone who claims to confess one of the reformed confessions uh, is going to have to agree with if they truly do confess one of those confessions. Uh, because it's clearly their Second London Confession, Savoy Declaration, Westminster Confession, three forms of unity. You're going to find uh, the language of covenant, and you're going to find the language of uh, covenant of works, covenant of grace, uh, especially in the Westminster and the 1689, as well as the Savoy uh, Declaration. And so, I, 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 given the fact that it's, you know, kind of contemporary Reformed-ish individuals that like to advocate post-millennial theonomy, typically— uh, I, I think it's helpful to bring their deeply held convictions, which would be hopefully confessional, at least uh, they would claim it is confessional, to bring that those sets of those that set of convictions into relationship with this kind of postmillennial theonomy, which uh, of course is an accretion in relation to the Reformed confessions, because the brand of postmillennial theonomy that we experience and, and have an idea of today is not the kind of optimistic eschatology that was being advertised in the 17th century. It's just not. It's not the same thing. Uh, there are several innovations that go into what makes post-millennial theonomy today, post-millennial theonomy today. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, let me start off with some definitions, and I'm I'm going to use some rather broad definitions here, and I think these are accurate. Um, we'll look at a quote from from Doug Wilson in somewhat of a recent uh, video interview that he did with Ben Merkel uh, over at, um, I believe that's 
the Canon Press YouTube uh, channel back in 2022, uh, so last year. Um, and then we're going to get into some some problems that I'll look at a problem, kind of a problem summary. There are basically four issues that we're going to look at. And then uh, maybe we'll engage with the confession a little bit uh, after that. So I think what happens in, in a lot of conversation amongst the laity is there is a great deal of confusion and mixture of terms. Like, Often, Christian nationalism is taken as a synonym for something like postmillennial theonomy, so, such that if you are a Christian nationalist, or you would describe yourself as a Christian nationalist, you're automatically lumped in with the postmillennial theonomists. And while I think postmillennial theonomy would, would necessitate a Christian nationalism, something like a Christian nationalism, not all Christian nationalisms are alike. And so not all Christian nationalisms would entail postmillennial theonomy, if that makes sense. Um, I, I think this is illustrated in, you know, some, some of the older literature. If, if you take into consideration that uh, a lot of the 17th century uh, theologians, Puritans, were millenarians, which means that they believed in a future millennium, and yet they also believed that uh, the king should be Christian. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the modern categories that we have kind of invented somewhat helpfully in some cases to, to talk about these positions have kind of become a driving force of themselves. But when you, but when you go back in time, you realize that the modern categories break down as you look at uh, historical theology and you know, not very many people in the 17th century were fitting into the categories that we've come up with since then. And I, I, I always like talking about John Gill because, uh, and, and you can go back a few episodes ago and look at uh, a discussion that I have uh, regarding John Gill. And uh, he doesn't fit into, you know, the modern paradigms. Uh, he, there's a lot in Gill that would agree with amillennialism. There's a lot in Gill that would agree with postmillennialism. There's a lot in Gill that would agree, of course, with premillennialism. And so, you know, you, you, uh, modern eyes would read Gill and they'd say, you know, they'd read a, a part of Gill and they would say, you know, oh, he's a postmillennialist. You know, he's got this uh, kind of uh, optimistic understanding of the gospel going forth, the world being largely Christianized, and so on, leading up to the uh, millennium. Um, but then you read another aspect of Gill or another angle of Gill, and you'd say, well, he seems quite premillennial because, of course, he puts, he believes in a future millennium that uh, is inaugurated at the uh, arrival of Christ. And so, it, you know, it's not, it, you go back in time and you realize how kind of uh, lost in our own echo chamber we are sometimes, yeah, and w when you see these guys who don't really fit into any category. So I think what's important is to distinguish these things, um, and that was kind of a long way to lead up to something very simple, and that is to distinguish, in this case, Christian nationalism from postmillennial theonomy. Um, Christian nationalism and that discussion uh, may be related, but it should be distinguished from postmillennial theonomy. Um, Christian nationalism if we just take it in the broadest sense, specifically relates to a civil politic informed by Christian distinctives 
or a distinct Christian ethic. Um, that would be a more narrow sense. Uh, bro most broadly put, some people use the word Christian nationalism to describe uh, themselves if they believe that they're that that the politic, the civil politics, should be informed by the moral law generally, or the Decalogue, which of course is not distinctly Christian. The Decalogue is a codification of natural law, so it's it's not distinctly Christian, though nevertheless included within uh, Christianity. Natural law or the moral law is a mixed article. Uh, that means it exists in the Christian faith, but it's not distinct to the Christian faith. It's also revealed through nature, and so they would, some would just say, "Yeah, I'm in favor of you know enforcing the Decalogue in society that it should be a political norm," um, and so there's a. a there's a little bit of a misnomer there to call that Christian nationalism. Nevertheless, I'm just trying to describe those who would describe themselves as, as Christian nationalists. Um, Postmillennial theonomy. So to be a Christian nationalist on, on that definition, or at least one of those two definitions, doesn't require you to be a postmillennial theonomist. Um, postmillennial theonomy uh, is, you know, when you, when you take it in the most modern sense of the term, the way it's being articulated now, you'll hear very simplistic statements. They'll kind of equate it with, you know, Kuyperian sentiments like all of Christ for all of life. Um, but then what they do is they, and we, there's nobody that would disagree with all of Christ for all of life. Uh, I, I, you know, we would we would differ in terms of how we apply that and qualify it. The postmillennial theonomists would want to apply that through means of the cultural or dominion mandate given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. So the way in which we properly realize or recognize all of Christ for all of life is by taking a pre-lapse circumstantial distinctive, the dominion mandate, and applying it to ourselves almost as if the fall never occurred or if the, or if the brokenness of the covenant of works never occurred. All right, um, and and then what ends up happening is the dominion mandate is is now seen as the goal or the telos of the uh, covenant of grace and everything that occurs within the covenant of grace and within New Testament churches. Let me read you an excerpt from uh, Doug Wilson's interview with Ben Merkel on uh, the the Canon Press YouTube channel. <clears throat> This is in a video called Making Disciples or Taking Dominion Question. Uh, begins at six, the 16-second mark, so very early on. It's a very short video, but if you go to the 16-second mark, this is where Doug begins saying this, and he says, he says this as follows. The dominion mandate has to do with all of creation. He's distinguishing, by the way, the dominion mandate from something like making disciples or evangelism. He says the dominion mandate has to do with all of creation, subdue, multiply, the Dominion Mandate would include deep-sea exploration and mining and metallurgy and music and that sort of thing, which the Great Commission does not address explicitly. All right, so he's making a distinction between the Great Commission and the Dominion Mandate. And then he goes on to say, he says, but I think that the Great Commission and the fulfillment of the Great Commission will turn out to have been, at the end, the driving engine of the Dominion Mandate. So he's saying that the Great Commission and what results from the Great Commission becomes the engine driving the fulfillment of the Dominion Mandate. And he goes on, he says, because the only way the Dominion Mandate can be fulfilled is in Christ. And the only way people can get in Christ is through people fulfilling the Great Commission. 
So the steps would be the Great Commission, evangelists, church planters go out, plant churches, preach the gospel. Through this, people believe and become Christians. I'm still quoting Doug Wilson. And then the last thing he says, and then the process of teaching them to obey all I've commanded, quoting Jesus' words, starts to take effect. So you see what he ends up doing there is he actually ends up making the covenant of grace and everything therein and the glorious splendor of Christ and his union with his church a means, a tool to get something else, namely uh, a tool to fulfill the pre-lapse dominion mandate given to Adam. That's... I'll get to that problem here in a minute. That's that's a big issue. It's a it's a well, it does a lot of things, and and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I, you know, there there are a few problems with this. Four four to be exact. I just alluded to one of them, and I'll talk about that as the fourth problem. But the the first problem is this: the Garden Dominion. All right, so when I'm, I'm talking about Edenic dominion as it was given to Adam before the fall, garden dominion was contextualized. What was its context? Well, its context as it was given to Adam was, con- was an unbroken covenant of works, number one. Number two, man's state of innocence. All right. And then thirdly, the absence of sin. Three things which no longer obtain for us. So the garden dominion or the dominion or cultural mandate given to Adam in creation, that is in Genesis 1 and 2, is given within a context that no longer obtains for us today. Even as we sojourn and, and live in the, in, the, in, the, in the state of grace as Christians, this is still a situation that does not obtain for us. Think about it. Do, do we live under an unbroken covenant of works? Well, absolutely not. The covenant of works has been broken. Um and we still experience death as a result, by the way. Uh, man's state of innocence, we still sin. Um, the absence of sin, obviously not. We still sin. Uh, so this is not our circumstance today. So to take the dominion mandate and just kind of simply apply it as this gloss over the Christian life today without any qualification or observation in terms of its covenant context in Genesis 1 through 2 is to... The net effect of that, what ends up happening is you you confuse the covenant of works with the covenant of grace. Um, you confuse law with gospel. Um, you confuse works with grace, and so on. And so uh, there's a lot at stake here, and it's part of why I, I, I'm, I've grown concerned over several years uh, at the post-millennial theonomic kind of movement. I'm not so much concerned about Christian nationalism. Uh, I, I, I think there are problems with that, but I think it's I think there are some stripes of that or some definitions of that that can be defined in a way that's not as problematic, though I would disagree with, in that case, the term Christian nationalism being applied to it. I'm more concerned with the theological assumption in postmillennial theonomy that the Dominion mandate applies to us today just about as it did to Adam prior to the fall. Uh, I, and, and a lot of things seem to go wrong in that case. The second problem, and this, this kind of relates to the first in that it's a contextual issue, the garden dominion or the dominion mandate in the garden was the result of life. 
or or let me say it this way, the ability to fulfill the garden dominion mandate was the result of life which Adam had in his innocence. And this life that Adam had in his innocence included perfect rectitude of soul and body. This is okay, so that's that's what characterized Adam's life in the garden prior to the fall a perfect rectitude in both soul and body. There was no conflict. There was no sin. And that was the context and the uh, the cause, really, of being able to fulfill the Garden Dominion mandate. Well, even as Christians, we don't have perfect rectitude of soul and body. Um, our lower passions are corrupt, and oftentimes our uh, our reason is is listens, as it were, <laughs> listens to our lower passions. And, you know, this is the whole idea of sin. Um, and so even Christians in the state of grace lack the integrity that Adam had prior to the fall. And they'll continue to lack the integrity Adam had prior to the fall. Unless you believe in some kind of perfectionism, they'll continue to, Christians will continue to lack that integrity until the resurrection and the consummation which will only attain, by the way, through the covenant of grace, not through man's kind of struggling to fulfill the dominion mandate, and at the end we get to the resurrection or something like that. It's, and I'm not saying that's what, that's what the post-millennial theonomists believe, but I'm just trying to be careful to, to make the proper qualifications that the resurrection, the consummation of the kingdom, comes only through the covenant of grace, and it's fulfilled by grace through Christ and through Christ alone, not through Christ, then through his people. Because his people actually still have sin in the state of grace and are therefore incapable of obeying to a sufficient degree that would warrant the fulfillment of the dominion mandate, if that makes sense. We still sin. We're not under a... If we're in the covenant of grace, we're no longer under the covenant of works, though we suffer the effects thereof death, namely. Uh, but that death is defeated in Christ, which is why we will go to be with him at death and then finally be resurrected when our soul is united, reunited to our bodies um, uh, upon the, uh, the consummation. And so we, we really have to be careful that we don't just take garden dominion and apply it to ourselves as we would apply it to Adam prior to the fall. Because even as Christians in the state of grace, yet have sin, yet have sin to such an extent that results in the impossibility of us going forth and, and claiming dominion. The reason it's impossible is because Christians have, we, we have a history of this. We, we see it historically, uh, that, that Christians in establishing a form of dominion will yet involve themselves in gross sins. True Christians, right? And 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 um, you know this goes all the way back. We could use David as an example, and that's what always happens. You know, think of David's sin, and and you know he's a, a true believer. Uh, he's uh, you know in, we look at we we use David as kind of a template for the Christian life. We we see him as a true believer, someone who loves God and has yet fallen, um, and. The, the same is true today 
in the sense that true believers can make grievous mistakes and they can grievously sin. Um, and, and, and that's a reality. I mean, it can, you know, conceptually, you could imagine a scenario where a group, you know, let's say Christians do take over a state somewhere and they then reason somehow that uh, AI would be better fit to <laughs> to rule a Christian society and then all sorts of you know problems emerge with that. But con- conceivably, Christians could do that. Why? Because they still have sin. They, they can still err. And they're, they're not in the state of integrity or the state of innocence that Adam was in. Um, and and, and they're, they're certainly not in the state of glory where they're confirmed in, uh, in, in righteousness at the end, and they are made morally immutable. We are not morally immutable. Uh, we, we have several kinds of moral failures that we deal with even as Christians, which means that while you might have a society that um, could, at least for a season, look better than a, a society that is is led by unbelievers, there could conceivably be a Christian society that that performs evil things and mandates evil things all in the name of God. I mean, this is what was happening with Roman Catholicism. Uh, the three basic Christendoms that have uh, arisen since the time of Constantine, all of them have gone the same way. All right? It's not Christendom 2.0. It would be Christendom 4.0. Uh, and it it would be just another, it would be the fourth link in a chain of failure um, because it's an improper understanding of the state of uh, the state of innocence in relation to the state of grace, the garden dominion as it was given to Adam in his state of innocence and our situation in the state of grace, we are yet sinners, we are still we still have a fallen nature and we are thus unable to shoulder the demands of the covenant of works that Adam was under. And so we can't expect ourselves to be able to go forth and, and fulfill this dominion mandate. Christ has to do it for us. Um, thirdly, the third problem, garden dominion, Edenic dominion, and its goal were attainable only through Adam's works within the covenant of works. All right. That it was only attainable through Adam's works. We have to recognize that if we're going to appeal to the dominion mandate, we have to recognize that the dominion mandate was contextualized by a covenant of works, and as such, it was conditioned upon Adam's works. And essentially what you get in a lot of postmillennial theonomic circles is, well, if we just apply the law rightly and obey it correctly, we can fulfill the dominion mandate. That is problematic because what it assumes is a perfectionism in the Christian, at least an eventual perfectionism, like eventually we will be perfectly obedient to God's law. We just need to work at it. And the problem with that is, again, it's mixing the covenant of works with the covenant of grace. Because another thing that it does is it says, well, if we're in Christ, we can do this. And so essentially it makes grace an instrument, a tool for going forth and fulfilling the terms of the covenant of works. And here you have a, 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 a merging of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and a confusion of law and gospel. And then the fourth thing, I mentioned this already, but Wilson's explanation that I read earlier in the video seems to make Christ's work through his church a means to a cultural recuperation. 
instead of seeing Christ's work through his church as a glorious end, namely the end of redemption, or at least a, a step in the end of redemption, the end of redemption being the consummation upon Christ's return and, and our glory with him, uh, instead of seeing it as a as a a glorious goal that we currently have just to assemble together as churches, observe the means of grace. There's yet something added to that that makes that, that makes um, Christ's work through his church and in local churches just a stepping stone for something that is perceived to be better, namely cultural engagement, political engagement, cultural recuperation. So it makes the church... It makes the means of grace, everything that goes on on the Lord's Day, everything that goes on within the context of the local church, it, it just makes all of that just a, a simple tool to get something else done. It makes that a simple tool to get something else rather than the end of Christ's redemptive work itself. And I, I think that's—so when when we meet on the Lord's Day uh, and 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 we, 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 we worship God on the Lord's Day— and there's doxology, and there's singing, and there's encouragement and admonishment and prayers. We understand that really to be the height of the Christian's week. And really, as you consider that week in, week out, that is the height of the Christian's life in the present state of grace. And to make that but a tool or a means to some cultural general end, I think is a grave mistake. Um, because number one, it just makes it a means in a, a kind of s- step or process of obedience. If we can just obey good enough and, and obeying good enough is just one step of that is participating in the church and the means of grace and all of that. But there's something yet beyond that we must do in order to achieve this great cultural recuperation. And that's totally lacking in scripture. In fact, if you go to Romans 8, uh, and there's so much that we could do here uh, in Scripture. Uh, Job, I think, is a, a perfect example of, you know, man's kind of situation after the fall where, you know, God basically humiliates Job by asking him rhetorical questions, uh, rhetorical questions that assume Job cannot take dominion. Uh, even even though Job is is apparently a believer, he's he's an upright man. He's he's a follower of Yahweh. Uh, he communes with Yahweh. Even he's restored by Yahweh in the end. Um, but the way God engages Job is by way of rhetorically humiliating him. Can you um, bind the? Uh, constellation Pleiades. No, you can't. Can you um, subdue Leviathan? No, you can't. Uh, so there's there's all these... You would think, however, if, 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 if Job were in a state wherein he could actually fulfill those things, those questions would not have been asked because I, the answer would have been, yeah, he could go and, and get Leviathan. I think Adam in his state of righteousness could go and subdue Leviathan. Um, he, he had, even in like Genesis two, where he names the animals, he call, he has the authority to name the animals and whatsoever he named them, that was what it was called. And that was what it is. So, um, there was this, there was this 
comprehensive dominion and ability to take dominion that Job didn't have because Job's living on the other side of the the other side of the fall. One of the things I wanted to look at in Romans 8 was um, the uh, creational kind of hope for creation. Um, and, you know, if you look at Romans 8, 18 through uh, 25, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And obviously that's an allusion to the resurrection. For the earnest expectation of the creation, the, the I believe that's the cosmos, so that would be, uh, no, that's, uh, no, that's not, that's not even cosmos, that's uh, uh, Ketisus, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Ketisus being that which has been made, um, the creation. Uh, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to humility or subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, expectation, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. How? Through us fulfilling the cultural mandate? No, into the glorious liberty of the children of God, which is a reference, contextually, that's a reference to the resurrection. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs and together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So in our present state, we groan within ourselves. There's something still yet lacking, something to which we look, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? For what he does, for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, the idea here in Romans eight is that this, the redemption of the world of the creation, occurs in correlation to the bodily resurrection, and so there's this analogy between the creation in general, as a macrocosm, and man as a microcosm of the creation, and they're redeemed. Uh, tangentially to one another, such that man's resurre- man's resurrection sets uh, sets up rather the um, uh, I don't want to say the context that's kind of weird. Uh, it, it, it's it's a requisite to the redemption of of creation. So instead of seeing creation as this kind of uh, progressive being kind of progressively recuperated through the work of the Christian, which would have been the situation uh, with Adam under the covenant of works, that Adam would have slowly and progressively taken dominion over the over the creation. Instead of importing that into the Christian circumstance, why not instead understand the local church and the, the, the worship of the Christian as the height of the Christian life in the present state as the Christian anticipates the redemption of of creation and along with it the recuperation of culture in tangent with the resurrection of the body. Um, there's going to be a change, but the change isn't, and, and, and while there may be change that takes place in this creation, and of course there will be change as people are brought to Christ and uh, and Christians are, are created through the work of the Spirit, um, there will be change, yet it, it won't be it won't be the uh, eschatological change uh, that we yet hope for 
it's it's going to be temporary change. You know, generations of Christians will die. The spread of the faith will recede, and it'll wax and wane. That could go on for another 2,000 years, by the way. Um, and then, upon Christ's return and our resurrection, the creation will then be delivered. Uh, and and so, so then, we, uh, we can then understand the dominion mandate to be met entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the sense that through Christ we now have the means to fulfill the dominion mandate, which is what Doug Wilson's getting at. In other words, our being in Christ is just a tool to fulfill the dominion mandate. It's an instrument to fulfill the dominion mandate. Instead of that, right, uh, we understand the dominion mandate to be wholly completed and fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and we will see that upon his return when we are raised from the dead, souls reunited to bodies, and uh, and and at that same time, a deliverance of the of the cosmos, of the catissus, the creation, um, into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And 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 if we see it that way, the glory is taken off of ourselves. And it's not it's not only that the glory is taken off of ourselves, the burden of fulfilling the covenant of works, which we can't hope to fulfill in our sin, is taken off. And we see it as being fulfilled entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets all the glory, right? We get all the rest. <laughs> and, and we enjoy Christ. And we worship him week in and week out, uh, showing deference to the local church, gathering, hearing the word preached, being edified through the food of the word preached to us. And we are uh, partaking of the ordinances we're sent out to preach the gospel, communicate the gospel to uh, those around us, make disciples. They come into the church. The church is built. The church is added to through means of the gospel going forward and the spirit working through the gospel going forward, hopefully. And uh, and the number is added to. This doesn't mean that the church is going to expand visibly like as if, you know, eventually the church is just going to take over the whole world. Um but it does mean that the church as eternally considered these last 2,000 years, the church is pretty big. Uh, you have to think about that because the saints in heaven <laughs> right now in the presence of Christ are part of that church. And as the gospel goes forth, even if we don't tempor temporally see it in our experience, as the gospel goes forth, souls are saved, Christians die in this world. We go to be with God, the church is added to. And then Christ comes back um, eventually, we don't know when that will be, and delivers the creation through the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Okay, I think I'll go ahead and stop there. Uh, we could go through the confession. Uh, I would refer you to, in terms of understanding the confessional stance of the circumstances of dominion, the condition for dominion lost. Uh, in, in other words, we lost the ability to fulfill the conditions for uh, the dominion. Uh, the ability for dominion still lacking, even in the even in the regenerate. I would refer you to Second London Confession, chapter four and chapter six. There are other places I could refer you to as well, but those would be decent starting points. Again, that's Second Second London Confession, chapter four and chapter 
six. God bless you guys. Again, if you haven't uh, subscribed to the channel yet, please do so. Click that bell for continued notifications. If you're listening on a podcast platform, Spotify, iTunes, leave a review. Would very much appreciate it. Have a good day.